You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. This evening, we gather together to consider Christ. It's what we want to do every single time we come together, of course, is to consider Christ. But tonight, we want to draw our hearts to think of our Lord and Savior. To just allow our hearts and our souls, our minds, to sort of rumble a bit about this Jesus. And how he experienced the unthinkable. God himself cursed dying. So this evening, we come somber and solemn, but not sullen or hopeless. We are here to draw attention to that which Christ accomplished in his death, because it is worth magnifying, even these 2,000 years later. We are not coming together on a beautiful spring day, to manufacture or contrive some sort of emotion so that we will feel a certain thing, so that we will prove to ourselves that we really do care. Rather, we come together tonight as God's people, in God's spirit, around God's word, to try to gain a clear understanding, to look at the visual that the scripture gives us, to see it rightly, and then in so doing, to see it rightly, to think rightly. And that is what will determine and drive and dictate our emotion and our pathos when we consider who Christ is and what he has done. It has been said that the Lord Jesus accomplished 28 Old Testament prophecies in the last 24 hours of his life. He was not a victim. He was king the entire time. So much so that even a sign by a pagan was placed above his head to ratify his regal nature. You've heard this evening already, we have walked through the Apostle John's telling of the crucifixion. I want us now to walk through the telling in the Gospel of Mark. So I'm going to begin walking through Mark chapter 15 in verse 1. And as soon as it was morning on Friday, because Thursday was the day that after nightfall, he had had the very last Passover ever. Had sung a song with his friends, had had a meal, and had drank three of the four cups, and had gone out into the evening, east down the Kidron Valley, up into the Garden of Gethsemane, and wrestled in his soul and his spirit because he knew what was coming. And he was betrayed by his disciple Judas and arrested and had a sleepless night as he was harassed and mocked and beaten. But as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. 
And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so, or it is as you say. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. Even Pilate seems to know that the thing we simply cannot endure is false accusation. And yet, Jesus makes no defense because he knows why he is there. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Verse 6. Now at the feast... Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived, he knew, that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered Christ up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. Having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This Barabbas. We don't know anything else about him. But his name, Bar Avas, means son of the father. Here's what we do know about Barabbas. It was the thing that he knew about himself. He was as guilty as sin. He was in chains was wrong. He had done it. And he'd gotten caught. And though he had probably offered up all sorts of defenses, he was, if you will, dead to rights. In his prison cell, he probably saw as the soldiers erected the three vertical posts that would be the instrument of his own crucifixion. And sleep did not come easy to Barabbas that night. Finally, morning dawns, and he hears the heavy boots of Roman soldiers coming to get him. And he knows this is it. I'm guilty. I'm about to get what I deserve. And they drag him in front of a chanting crowd, and he's perplexed. He can't quite understand. What is all this about? And he looks over and sees this mess of what used to be a man. This one that has been scourged within an inch of his life and his body broken. Next thing you know, the Roman governor says, this mess of a man is taking your place. There Barabbas saw it. There was his cross, guilty as sin, deserving to hang upon it. But he had heard of this mess that used to be a man. And as the chains fall off, he has to walk away, sure of one thing, that the guilty would go unpunished and that the innocent 
would die in his place. Interestingly, the scriptures never tell us anything else about Barabbas because, you see, I'm Barabbas and you're Barabbas. Guilty as sin. Dead to rights. No argument. Having to recognize that someone else has taken my place. Mark continues in verse 16. And the soldiers led Jesus away inside the palace. That is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. Everybody they could muster. Oh, what sport this will be. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. Shoving these razors into his scalp deeply. Releasing countless nerves to scream out and cry out in pain. They began to salute him, mocking, Hail, King of the Jews. They were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him. Filth on his face. Venom of those he had created. Now vile proclaiming victory and mocking him. Spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, which had undoubtedly already begun to connect with the wounds of the scourging, both front and back, because it would be two stripes across the back, flip over, one across the stomach, two across the back, one across the chest. And as they put this purple garment around him, surely it began to soak in and connect. And now they rip it off violently, reopening anew, tormenting all the nerve endings afresh. They stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene in North Africa, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry this 40-pound crossbar because Jesus could simply no longer muster the weight. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Mark is mercifully brief. Because every ancient reader would have known precisely what this was. It needn't be described in vivid detail because it was the most horrific device of humankind to torture a human being. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. He suffered hours at the hands of man. Soon he will suffer hours at the hands of God. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left, where Barabbas should have been. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! 
You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. We have to assume that at this moment there are trillions of trillions of angels at the ready. If he would but raise an eyebrow, they would have swept in to dash these mockers. But he never says a word. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the Christos, the anointed one, Mashiach, the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour came, three hours, Jesus experiencing fracture of fellowship with the Father. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. In the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, the Gentile, the pagan, when he saw how this man had lived, and when he saw how this man had died, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. This is Mark's telling of the crucifixion of Christ. And we come together this evening not to try to manufacture or contrive some pathos, but to see it for what it was, to see him for who he was. And so we come together to grieve and to mourn. We might not even feel like it. And we ask our God that we be not too quickly rescued by joy. Oh, we know that joy is coming. But for tonight... We want to pause momentarily and be in the shadows. For 2,000 years, the church has gathered regularly on Good Friday to have tenebrae. Tenebrae means shadow in Latin. It is to commemorate the emotion and the passion of Christ. And for 2,000 years, this man, this Jesus that we gather to commemorate, we commemorate and we celebrate that he came to conquer a curse with his corpse. And as much as we want to rightly emphasize his deity, we cannot, we must not minimize his humanity. His suffering and his anguish were absolute. They were great. And those closest to him suffered tremendously. They experienced devastation. The giver of life, the author of life, the creator himself would go toe to toe with death. And from all appearances, he would lose. But on the cross, he uttered this final proclamation. It is finished. What did he mean? 
He meant that the curse from Genesis 3 was reversed. You see, plenty of people all throughout the Roman Empire were crucified by the thousands. But only one was effective in reversing the curse. Mary and the other women gathered around to witness the crucifixion. They are, they are despondent. So many hopes and dreams, so much potential, so much goodness and grace and wisdom. It was just so good. He never lashed out in cynical anger or sarcasm. He was so good. They just couldn't be around him enough. And here he was, nailed to a cross, gasping, suffocating, bleeding, suffering. And his friends suffered tremendously. They must have thought this was the, the snuffing out of a light. We know psychologically, that coping with the violent death of a loved one is the absolute hardest thing for a human being to process. And they mourned deeply and profoundly as to them their hope was extinguished. And so we gather together, yes, to grieve and mourn, but to also affiliate with them, to, to try to catch a glimpse of what they must have endured as their rabbi, their teacher, their friend, their their leader, their savior, was nailed to a tree. But he had to accomplish what he came to do. He had to reverse the curse, or it would exist even to this day in all of us. In Mark 15, 37, he says that Jesus surrenders his spirit. He was not killed. He voluntarily died. In John 19, 30, he writes, It is finished. What was finished was his suffering and his humiliation. In one sense, it was relief. It was finally over. The entering into the human condition and the seeing all of the people around him that were grieving and suffering and dying and experiencing the concentric circles of sin. It was finally over. His work that he had been commissioned to do, the redemption of mankind, was finished. And the sacrifice that he offered had to be offered outside in full view. The death had to have been public and visible before all people. The slaying of Christ was before men, but the sprinkling of his sacrifice was made before God. So why are we here on a Friday, 2,000 years later? Because in Psalms chapter 22, verses 30 and 31, it says this, Posterity, generation on generation, shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. That's why we're here, so that generations after us will also know who this Jesus was and what he did. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Our gathering this evening matters. It is a demonstration and a proclamation that he has done it. Christ's death accomplished the reversal of the curse. Way back in the book of Deuteronomy 21 and 23, the covenant struck with God and Israel said that cursed is he who is hanged on a tree. But not just the curse of being hanged on a tree, it is the curse of the entire created order that is now hanging on Christ. The weight he bore on the cross was the full burden of the fallen created world. Net of Genesis chapter 3. 
And in Galatians chapter 3, verses 13, Paul writes to us that Christ redeemed us. He bought us back from the curse of the law. There we were, subject to futility and frustration and a fracture in fellowship. But he bought us back from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So how did Christ reverse the curse? Curse reversal, three ways that he has done this. We see this in the crucifixion narrative. First of all, thorns. His receipt and taking into himself thorns is an echo of of the past and how he will reverse the curse. The very first Adam, God says, cursed is the ground because of you, because of your sin, because of your rebellion. You were to have been my vice regent, to have had dominion in this world, and to make the world Eden. It is good, it is perfect, but I want you to make the rest of the world like Eden. And Adam failed, and the ground has been cursed because of him ever since. That's what Genesis 3 says. But the last Adam, what Paul calls Jesus in the book of Romans, the last Adam, the crown of thorns, as Christ took the full anguish of fallen creation. He takes onto himself the curse of Adam's sin. He becomes that curse. See, the first Adam reversed the promise of blessing in the Garden of Eden. But Christ reverses the reversal by bearing the curse unto death. This is what our Jesus has done. Second reversal of the curse, nakedness and shame. Christ is often depicted with his undergarment still on him, but the the horror and the humiliation and the shame is that, oh no, he was stripped bare in full display of a taunting, mocking culture. The first Adam was also naked, but then he sinned and he tried to cover his own guilt and shame by clothing himself with a fig leaf. But the last Adam, Jesus, was stripped naked, his seamless undergarment taken. He's utterly exposed. And the glorious mercy of God looks away. He is utterly exposed as the wrath of God is poured out on him. And in so doing, we are covered. The glorious mercy of God turns to us We are covered. The wrath of God looks away from us. Adam could not bear the eye of God's justice, and so Jesus has to. Adam could not bear the nakedness and shame, and so Jesus has to. And the third reversal of the curse is death. First, it is thorns in the created order. Second, it is nakedness and shame, but the third curse reversal is death. The first, Adam sinned operated in faithlessness and functional disbelief, and all of his guilt and death was imputed, deposited to all of mankind, to all of us. And death begins to reign in humanity. And death begins to say, because of your rebellion, there is an immediate separation from God. Because of your rebellion, there is an inevitable physical death. Because of your rebellion, there is a separation from God. But the last Adam, Jesus He suffered, and all of his righteousness and life was imputed, deposited to us, those who believe. Jesus, in essence, comes toe-to-toe with death and sin and says, Hey, why don't you pick on someone your own size? And death dances 
at the cross of Christ, thinking that he has won, but all along knowing better. Death looked at the cross and says, it is finished. But Christ goes to the cross and says, it is finished. The curse is reversed. See, death is always about separation. The fracture of the person from the body and the soul at physical death is separation. It was never intended. It is a product of sin. The severing from the soul from the presence of God, eternal death. And now Jesus was going to experience both of these at the cross. Crucified, hanging on the cross, the curse reversed because Jesus, both God and man, was cursed and dead on our behalf. Here in just a moment, we're going to have communion together. We're going to have the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. And we're going to do this a little bit differently We're going to do this by what's called intinction. The Apostle Paul says that every time we come together to celebrate communion, we are to proclaim the Lord's death. He died. God became flesh and he died. And we do this until he comes again. We're going to have communion by intinction. What that's going to mean is we're going to have a couple of our elders and their spouses up here holding the elements, the juice and the bread. They will wait and they will approach, you will approach and you will take some bread and you will simply dip it into the juice and you will take it. We're going to ask tonight that you not uh, take the cup if you're used to doing that and drinking directly from it. We're just going to ask that you do this via intinction where you take the bread, dip it, and take it. One of these elders might say something to you like this is the body of Christ offered to you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. We're going to ask you to come individually or as a family or as a row or as a group of people to come to have communion together, to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And when you're finished, if you would please return to your seats. If you were here this morning and you're not a believer that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, that what he accomplished on the cross was a reversal of the curse, we're just going to ask you to observe and to stay seated. If you're A child here and your parents have not told you that it's okay for you to come at this point. We're going to ask you to stay as well. Or you can come with your parents, but please do not partake of the elements. I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite you to pray with me and to continue in a season of prayer. And while I'm praying, I'm going to ask the elders and their spouses who are going to serve if they would come forward. And if I would, can ask the the band to come back up. I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite you to pray with me. And when I'm done praying... When you're ready, I'm going to invite you to come to take these elements as a proclamation of the Lord's death until he comes. And again, when you are finished, if you will return to your seats and to continue in a spirit of prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you tonight that as you looked as the ancient of days, having had perfect fellowship with the Son and the Spirit for all eternity, and there you saw Jesus, your son, sent forth, become flesh, hanging, suffering. And you've told us in your word that you poured out your wrath and crushed him so that you would not have to do that to us. And so, Father, we give you honor. Holy Spirit, we give you praise for so strengthening the son that there he stayed on the cross experiencing what we deserved. 
And Lord Jesus, we gather tonight to proclaim your finished work. Lord God, we confess there is much that we have added to that event. All of our fear, all of our faithlessness, all of our anger, all of our deceit, all of our pride, all of our profanity, all of our lust, all of our false humility, all of the ways we are outside the character of your son was heaped on him that night. And so we say thank you for taking our place, for not raising an eyebrow and having trillions of hosts of angels eradicate our species, but instead you saved our species by becoming one of us. And so, Lord Jesus, would you receive all of our fractured fellowship and fallenness retroactively onto what you accomplished on the cross? We thank you for the forgiveness that you achieved on the cross. We pray, God, that you would give us a glimpse of the grieving that the friends and family of Jesus experienced then, that we might experience it now, and that we would proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We pray these things, Father, the only way we can, in the power of your Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.